Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to cover uh, verses 17 through 21 this morning. In the late fall of 1517, October uh, 31st to be exact, some 501 years ago, the fiery German priest and theologian Martin Luther posted his now famous 95 theses on the castle, uh, at the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that single action, as you know, actually sparked the, the greatest revolution in all of church history, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, at the time, Luther, who was kind of Christianity's uh, wild child, he brazenly took on the Roman Catholic Church, and in particular, the Dominican priest Johann Tetzel over the sale of indulgences. So what was happening basically is the church was charging people for forgiveness. They were charging people for forgiveness, and, uh, and they, they were doing this as a way to finance a new building campaign, uh, the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and the Sistine Chapel. And if your sins were great, the cost was exceedingly high. After all, Michelangelo didn't come cheap. He was the one who was designing the interior of the dome. And so if you wanted God's forgiveness, it was going to cost you. And Tetzel himself was known to have said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. Now, we don't know if he said that exactly, but he certainly echoed similar sentiments. Um, he taught and modeled that philosophy. And Martin Luther came along and said loudly and angrily, this has to stop. This has to stop. God's forgiveness is not for sale. Salvation cannot be bought. In other words, you can't buy it through money. Now, we know that you can't buy salvation. We know that you can't pay for forgiveness. But is there any connection at all between money and eternal life? Is there any correlation at all? The Apostle Paul will seem to suggest in the passage we're in this morning that there is at least some correlation. We're going to try to make sense of that this morning. This is the final message in our study through 1 Timothy. We've been uh, in this letter for about 20 weeks now. And we believe that the scriptures are best understood as you work your way through them expositionally, verse by verse or section by section. So this is where we find ourselves. This is kind of the last words in this second to last letter of the Apostle Paul written toward the end of his life. And in it, Paul will instruct Timothy, as we've already seen, to combat those who are teaching false doctrine, but also to recenter the church directionally, doctrinally, and theologically along with the division uh, caused by the false teachers, there was also division in the early church caused by this great disparity between those who were wealthy and those who were poor. There were those who were rich who were doing very well for themselves, and those who were completely poor, you might even say they were one day's paycheck away from utter ruin. And so you had poverty, which was rampant. You had slavery, which was rampant. You had all of this sort of uh, tension between those of different backgrounds. And in the middle of all that, you had those who were worshiping together, those who had been bought by Christ, redeemed by Christ, coming together as the church. The poor, the nobodies who were worshiping alongside the rich, the elite. And look at what Paul says to the elite, the rich. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and following. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by it, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, this is kind of an odd place for, it seems, for Paul to to say what he just said. Um, He's already kind of wrapped up his thoughts, it would seem, by this beautiful doxology uh, that we saw last week, verses 15 and 16. He's kind of done with this letter, it seems. So why this final word to the rich? Well, Paul is acutely aware, as were a half a dozen other biblical writers, including Jesus, Solomon, Peter, James, He was aware that money can steal a person's affections and blind a person to his need for God. Here's why Paul includes this. This is our first point this morning. Nothing produces self-reliance like wealth. And self-reliance is the single greatest barrier to saving faith. The consistent witness of the scriptures that eternal life is a a free gift received by faith alone. In Christ alone. What does that faith consist of? Well, it consists of believing that God is good, that God is holy, that God is perfect. That we are sinful, selfish people under his wrath. Faith means believing that we need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. Believing we cannot save ourselves. So God sent his son, to die on the cross for our salvation. Well, what's the opposite of believing that we are in need? It's pretty clear, believing that we're not in need, right? Well, there's an independence, there's a self-reliance that almost always comes with wealth. Not always, but almost always. This is why Jesus would say it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And I've heard various explanations. You know, the eye of a needle was a small gate in the west part of Jerusalem. No, Jesus is saying it's, it's virtually impossible. You've seen how big a camel is and the tiny little eye of a needle. It's virtually, virtually impossible except for God, except for God's miraculous work. Self-reliance, which is the, the greatest barrier to saving faith, is fueled by a lot of things, isn't it? It's fueled by youth by strength, by health, but perhaps most of all, by success. I was talking to a man not long ago who was describing for me the agony uh, that he went through when he was without a job. He thought things were going really well. He was sort of meeting his objectives and his goals, and all of a sudden, he goes in on one Wednesday, and he's told he's done. And he had a wife and, and two daughters, and he said he just panicked when he lost his job. Didn't see it coming. It wasn't expected, of course. And, and actually, he went more than a year without a job. And he said to me, I and mean, he just explained the internal wrangling, the spiritual struggle that he had. He said to me, uh, it was the first time in his life that he ever really had to wrestle with the question, do I trust God? Because the reality is he was doing just fine. Again, he was meeting his goals. He was providing for his family. He was in good health. He didn't really ever have to ask himself the question, do I trust God? 
Do I believe that God is good? When we're successful, we don't often ask those questions. Likewise, the younger we are, we, the less we realize our need for God. Youth can be a great deceiver. We have plenty of energy and, and strength. We hardly ever get sick. We don't need a lot of sleep. We think we'll deal with God later when we get older. It's the same way with our health. When we're healthy, we forget how much we need God. But when we come down with an illness that no one can really explain and no one can offer a diagnosis for. I mentioned Jerry Flanagan. I love this man. He's struggling now with pain that it's not really being fixed by anyone. He has some procedures lined up. But when you come to that place and you can't get your health, you can't get your strength, you run into a, a, a disease that you never expected. That's when we run to God for help, don't we? In fact, there's an unusual closeness to God that we experience when we're physically sick. That's why it's not surprising that some of the greatest and uh, most influential Christian leaders and writers of the past were actually sickly. I had to read uh, David Brainerd's memoirs in, in seminary. He was an 18th century missionary to Native Americans in eastern Pennsylvania. And this guy was sick his whole life, terribly sick. He died at the age of 29 from tuberculosis, but he struggled with illness and depression his whole life. And his memoirs are extremely difficult to read. They're very difficult to read. But he had a closeness with God and a dependence upon God that very few ever experience. Uh, John Calvin was given to almost constant illness. He had migraine headaches, headaches, kidney stones, gout, arthritis, and more. There were times when he had to be carried to the pulpit to preach. Multiple men would surround him and carry him to the platform so he could preach. He was weak almost all the time, but he had an intimacy with God that was virtually unparalleled. Martin Luther, I mentioned him at the outset, struggled horribly for years with illness. For nearly two decades, Luther was constantly sick with a disease that left him dizzy, weak, fainting, constant ringing in the ears. He lost almost all of his sight. He was nearly blind. Even the Apostle Paul, we know, dealt with an ongoing physical illness. He, he pleaded with God to remove this thorn in the flesh, which most scholars believe was a health issue. But God providentially allowed it to persist and caused him to depend upon the Lord in a deep and palpable way. Now, my point is not that we should pray for sickness, right? Or, or, or despise good health. Of course not. I hate being sick. And if I'm honest with you, I'm a terrible sick person. I'm horrible at being sick. I, I tend to suspect the worst. I immediately, you know, start Googling my symptoms and, and get way out of control. And Janine, being a nurse, being married to me almost for 25 years, she just, at this point, she just goes along with it, you know. Yeah, you're, you need to start saying your goodbyes to people for sure. She plays, I, I hate to be sick. And I'm not saying we should pray for sickness. Of course not. But, but I think we should be acutely aware of those things like good health that breed within us a sense of self-reliance. We have to be aware of these things because the more independently strong we feel, the further we can drift from God. And of all things, nothing fuels our self-reliance more than wealth. On the flip side, nothing reinforces our need for God, perhaps more than not having the money we need. Nothing drives us to God more 
than poverty. Several years ago, I was driving into Chicago for a graduate school class, and uh, my class was at 7 a.m., and in order to get there on time because of downtown Chicago traffic, I had to leave at 4.30 in the morning. Well, I was about halfway to class one morning, and I came to a toll booth at Klein Avenue in South Chicago. Now, this is before open road tolling, and the only way that you could get through the toll, there was a basket there. You've probably seen these, and you had to throw your change into the basket, the exact change, and then the, the toll bar would go up. Well, I pulled up to the basket. The bar was down in front of me, and I realized I had no change whatsoever. I had nothing. I had kept, you know, for my, my Thursday morning trips into class, I kept a, a, a stack of change in my armrest, but it was all gone. So I had the bar in front of me. I looked behind me. There were a line of cars about 10 deep, so I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go in reverse. I was totally stuck. Had no idea what I was going to do. So I had to get out of my car in sub-zero temperatures and crawl around on the cement looking for quarters and dimes. Now, the people behind me were livid. I was hoping they would think that I was praying and they would have a little more patience on me, but they didn't. They were honking their horns. They were yelling all kinds of things at me. I, 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 score, I, I scoured the cement. I poured over. I finally got enough quarters and dimes to throw into the basket and move forward. But never have I felt so helpless. Nothing makes us feel more helpless than not having enough money. And nothing gives us the illusion of being in control more than having ample money. We want something, we buy it. We need something fixed, we hire someone. We never really have to cry out to God for our next meal because we know we can actually provide for it. There's nothing wrong, of course, with having money. It's just that the more that we have, the more inclined we are to forget how desperately we need God. In fact, Asaph wrote about this in Psalm 73. And I love, this is, this is the New Living Translation, but I love the, the way it's written. He says about the rich, they seem to have such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. These fat cats have everything in their hearts could ever wish for. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused. They ask, does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. This is the way it seems, this is the way it appears with those who are rich. They don't have the problems that are common to the rest of us. They can take every, care of everything they need. Now, we know that this is not really the way that it is. They're not free from worry. They're not free from concern. We know that actually riches are fleeting, aren't they? Wealth can disappear in a moment. Investments falter. Home equity disappears in a second. Stocks plummet. When we lived in, in, first, in, in Southern California, we bought our, our first home right about 2010 when it was the ideal time to buy a house there because the market had just crashed. Well, our neighbors had moved to Southern California from Boston and they owed on their house $300,000 more than it was worth. And you talk about being stuck. They couldn't really sell because they were upside down on the house so badly. They, 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 we realized that, that money cannot be depended on. Money makes for a powerless and unreliable Savior. And this is why Paul instructs Timothy in verse 17 to charge those who are rich not to set their hopes on their riches, but to set their hope 
on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's a bit of a wordplay in, in the Greek language here that Paul resorts to. The rich should not trust in their riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Given the danger of wealth that I just alluded to, we might ex- expect Paul to say, look, take a vow of poverty. Get rid of everything you have. Don't enjoy anything. But of course, he doesn't do that at all. He says, enjoy the things of the earth. They have been given to us by God himself. God is no killjoy. Jesus was no ascetic. All created things are for us to enjoy. You can have money and still avoid self-reliance. It's not that money is all bad. It's that it's incredibly dangerous, which is why Paul says what he says in verse 18. says to the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, he says, and ready to share. Here's what Paul is saying. This is our second point. Wealth and dependence on God can coexist through gratitude and generosity. It is possible to have wealth and still trust in God, not money. And we see this throughout Scripture. There are some very wealthy people in the Scriptures, men and women of God who are commended by God, and yet they still had much, they had many possessions. So it's not as though that these are mutually exclusive. Wealth and dependence on God can coexist, first, by gratitude. If a person is wealthy, which is really, by the way, described just about everyone in this room, if you compare and you look at the global economy and the way people are suffering in other parts of the world, if a person is wealthy, they must first realize that everything they have is from God and it is to be enjoyed with thankful hearts. Now, again, remember the context here. We've spent a lot of time sort of establishing this over the last 20 weeks. There were false teachers who were saying that complete self-denial was the key to a right standing with God. And they were saying, if you just deny these things, then God will approve of you. And Paul says, no, God has actually provided us with everything to enjoy. Just like non-Christians, we enjoy food and drink and pleasure and art and entertainment and music. All of these things, though tainted by sin, were created for our delight. In fact, there's not a single pleasure that we as Christians cannot enjoy, although we enjoy those pleasures reasonably, that is to say in the biblical context, and in moderation with gratitude to God. Sometimes I think Christians give non-believers the idea that, that the Christian life is just one of constant drudgery, you know, constant denial and misery. There's some people that, that call themselves Christians that I really want to say to them, I wish you would never tell anyone you're a Christian because they seem so down all the time. They seem like, they're all, like life is just this constant misery. They don't enjoy the things that God has created. Nothing could be further from the truth. Not only do we enjoy all the things that God has created, but we experience them in an even sweeter way when we recognize that they're a gift from God to us because God loves us. The Puritans were sometimes criticized as being ascetics or uh, being grumps, you know, but, but this is not really the case. Richard Baxter says this, Yes, okay, we need to guard our hearts against the love of riches. But he goes on to say, all love for earthly goods, however, is not a sin. Their sweetness is a drop of his love. And they have his goodness imprinted on them. They kindle our love for him. 
as love tokens from our dearest friend. Loving them is a duty, not a sin. If you're the sort of person you walk around and, and, and nothing is ever good for you, nothing is ever right, you're not doing God any favors by, you know, by sort of poo-pooing everything, by looking down on everything. Now, we should enjoy the things that God has created, knowing that these are, are actually gifts from Him to us because He loves us. How do we foster gratitude? I think it's by reminding ourselves of what we deserve versus what God has given us. What we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is condemnation. We are rebels from birth, but what God has given us is life, breath, laughter, friendships, family, food, euphonious music, colorful sunsets, endless skies, dark chocolate, the sound of a basketball swishing through the nets. That's something to be enjoyed, right? The sound of a baseball striking the sweet part of a bat, the sound of a baby giggling. These are things to be enjoyed. These are things that are from God's hand that are to us. So, so one of the, way, the ways that we enjoy what we have without, without relying on it is through gratitude. Another way is, Paul says, through generosity, verse 18, being generous and willing to share. Think about this. Every time we give away something that we could keep for ourselves, we're actually training our hearts to trust in God, not our possessions. Every time we relinquish something that we could hold on to, Every time we give something to someone else that we could cling to, we're actually training our hearts to trust in God, not in our possessions. We remind ourselves that it's okay to give things away because our God is a generous God who is trustworthy, who has given us everything we need in Christ. It doesn't mean we have to give everything away. It doesn't mean we can't have nice things but we establish this pattern of generosity, giving joyfully and generously toward the kingdom for the benefit of other people. Now, there's one more correlation. Look at verse 19. Paul says, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this is, this is a very not, sounds like a very non-Pauline statement, doesn't it? It like, doesn't really sound like something you would say. It seems like he's saying that by doing good works, namely by acts of generosity, we can secure for ourselves eternal life. We know that's not what he's saying. I think there, there are two dangers when interpreting this, this, this verse, this section. One is to, to moralize it, and the other is to over-spiritualize it. Uh, but I think what Paul is saying here is, it, just like Jesus when he told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had, and then he would have treasure in heaven, what Paul is saying is, by giving generously, by giving uh, to others generously, we store up treasures in heaven in that, in that, we demonstrate that our hope has actually been transferred from our trust in riches to a trust in God who has in store for his children unbelievable treasures in the future. Let me say it a different way. And this is our, our final point this morning. The way we view and use our money will cause us to either miss or grab hold of eternal life. Now, I realize that needs some explanation, doesn't it? The way that we view and use our money 
will cause us to either miss or grab hold of eternal life. In other words, if we perceive of our money, if we perceive our money as something we can trust, something we can rely in, something that we put our hope in, our security in, and therefore something we can't do without, a la the rich young ruler who left Jesus, his face was downcast because he was a person of great wealth. If we perceive of our money as something we, we can trust in and something we can't do without, then we will become blinded of our need for God and consequently never turn to him in repentant faith. Because if we really think, you know, I've got the, I can take care of myself, I can provide for my own, my own health, my own material things, my own food, and we start to really trust in what we have, we become blinded of our need for God and we never turn to him in repentant faith. But if we recognize that everything we have is from God, everything we need is from a loving and generous God, a God who loved us so much that he gave his only son for our salvation, then actually our love for God is set on fire and we're willing to trust him with everything. Our material possessions, our health, our marriage, our careers, our relationships, even our eternal future. And that will lead us to denounce all self-reliance and put our faith only in Him. And that also leads to generosity. That brings us to verse 20. Look at verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is Paul's final word to Timothy. If I were a literary critic, I would call this, this statement a tour de force. If I were a rapper, I would call it a mic drop moment, right? This is where he drops the mic. This is where he makes the final statement. He says, Timothy, above all these things, Listen to what I've said. Pay attention to what I've said. But above all these things, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. The deposit is the gospel. And what Paul tells Timothy to do is, look, don't get caught up in distractions. Don't get caught up in worrying about carpet colors and constitution rewrites and leadership policy and, 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 and all of these things, stage backdrop and volume of the music. Don't worry about that stuff. He says, guard the deposit. Don't be duped into believing that something else, irreverent babbling, meaningless controversies, has the power to change people. No, above all else, keep the gospel central. Let your first and final word be the good news about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way. This is the only announcement. This is the only word by which people will be transformed at the heart level. So, should a person who's not giving his money be instructed to give? Certainly. Certainly. We've just seen that. We've seen Paul make, give those instructions. But that command to give will never change a person's heart. It will not create a joyful giver. It may, it may create a reluctant giver. The command to give alone will not create a joyful giver. Only the news that we've been given everything in Jesus Christ, full forgiveness, reconciliation with God, through no merit of our own, only through that news, only that will soften the stingy heart. And we see Paul model that as well. Should a person who's gossiping be commanded not to gossip? Absolutely. 
And it may actually curb their gossiping for a little bit. But it won't change their heart. What they need is the gospel. The good news that they don't have to have that sort of attention to be valuable. You know, gossip is nothing more than insecurity. It's wanting to have the the juiciest morsel, wanting to be the first person with a new bit of news. And what a person needs along with the command to stop is the news that they don't have to have that. They don't have to be the first person. They don't have to spread that gossip in order to be valuable, to be accepted, to be important. They need to be reminded that in Christ, they're already approved by the living God. person who's a gossiper, yeah, the person should be told to stop gossiping. But even more than that, they need to be told, look, God thinks the world of you because of Jesus Christ. He sees you through the lens of his son's perfection. You don't have to strive for that human approval. You don't need that. You can put aside that gossiping. Should the ancient, anxious person be told not to be anxious? Perhaps, I guess, sure. But it won't help them put off anxiety. In fact, it may actually become, cause them to be more anxious as they worry about why is it that I can't stop being anxious when the Bible tells me not to be anxious and other people are telling me not to be anxious, but I'm still anxious. What they need most is the news that they have a loving heavenly father who knows what they need before they ask and cares so deeply and so intimately for them. He knows everything about them. He knows every struggle. He knows every tear. He knows every anxious thought. He knows every fear. He knows everything and he loves them. And he is at this very moment working out everything in a way that is for their ultimate good and his glory. You can tell a person, don't be anxious. But unless it's accompanied by the good news of a loving father, they're only going to become more anxious. What they need to know is they have a savior in Jesus Christ who talks about them constantly to the father. Who gave his life for them and loves them so much. And this savior knows what he's going through and he can help. Guard the deposit, Paul tells Timothy. Don't let the gospel be amalgamated with all these self-help strategies and meaningless debates. Keep Jesus in front. Feed your people Jesus. That's what he's saying. Guard the deposit. Feed your people Jesus. Sure, there's a place for commands. There's a place for law. There's a place for exhortation. But keep the gospel in front. Here's Paul's reminder to Timothy in the words of Ryan Strong. If we don't believe the gospel will produce transformation, holiness, and fruit in the life of the Christian, we'll always be looking for the law to do what it is incapable of doing. In other words, believe the gospel. That's where transformation takes place. Preach, communicate the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of the good news about Jesus Christ. Simply telling people what to do is not enough. Commands alone don't bring life. For that we need grace. We need gospel. If you're here this morning and you haven't established a pattern of faithfulness in giving, we we need you to give. The church needs you to give. The gospel is advanced by your giving. But let me say this to you. 
if you're in Christ, you can afford to give generously and sacrificially because in doing so, you won't lose anything that matters. You can give of your money. You won't lose anything that matters. But what will happen through your giving is your faith in God will be deepened. Your trust in God will be magnified. And thus, the fullness of your life will increase. So our giving is a little down at the moment. And I know that in December, you know, with year-end giving, it, it goes up and so on. And I could say to you this morning, if you're not giving, you need to start giving. And that's a true word. But the reality is that's not going to change anyone's heart. But I, what I do want you to know is, if you're in Christ, if you give generously, you're not going to lose anything. You're only going to gain. You're not going to lose anything. You're only going to gain. If you're here this morning and you're exhausted from trying to be everything to everybody, let me say this to you. The one whose approval you need, it's already yours in Christ if you put your faith in Him. Now sure, you continue to serve others and you freely give of yourself to others, but know that God loves you already. Before you do anything for anybody, God already loves you. You belong to him in Christ. You are his in Jesus. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to earn his approval. You don't have to earn a good standing. You don't have to earn his love. You don't have to be everything to everybody. You're already cherished by the living God. If you're here this morning, you're overwhelmed with anxiety. Maybe you don't know what tomorrow holds and it concerns you. You don't know what's on the, the edge of the horizon for you and it worries you. It keeps you up at night. Let me say this to you. God is for you in Christ. He's not against you. God has no secret plan to destroy you, only to strengthen your faith through the trials you're going through. He loves you. He has your good at heart and His glory in mind all the time. So you can trust Him. You can trust Him that He has something good in store for you. Finally, if you're here this morning and you need forgiveness, you know you do. And maybe there's a, there's a sin that you've never confessed. Maybe, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say this to you. Forgiveness for you this morning is free. There's no amount of money that can pay for it. There's no amount of giving that can secure it. It's only by believing. It's only by trusting Believing in this God who has forever lived and is holy and perfect. Believing that he sent his son to die for you, a broken, rebellious person. Just like me, just like everybody else in this room. And believing that Christ's life and death and resurrection was enough of a substitute to fully usher you into the presence of God by faith. It's not by giving. It's not by doing. It's not by serving. It's not by obeying. It's not by showing up to church. It's by believing. And when you believe, you're granted a forgiveness that no one can ever take from you. A status that no one can ever jeopardize. A position in Christ that no one can ever, ever ruin. It's all yours by Christ, in Christ, and it's all yours by His glorious grace. Let's sing of that glorious grace in just a moment. Let's pray.